Hey, Toy Family. Oh, my gosh. Hey, Toy Family. Welcome to another edition of the Marshan Toy Hour, where we discuss anything and everything designer toys. I'm Gary Ham. I'm Teresa Hawkins. I'm George Gaspar. George, I like it. Two episodes in a row. That's awesome. I know. I'm back, baby. Yeah, it's awesome. No, love having you back. Thank you. And actually, speaking of you know comebacks and having someone who hasn't been on for a while, um, our next, our tonight's guest is actually no stranger to the show. In fact, he's actually one of the original hosts of the show. He actually puts Mars in Marsham. So, uh, reuniting with us tonight is the owner and operator of Martian Toys and the Mothership Gallery. So let's welcome back Aaron Holsizer. Welcome back, Aaron. Hey guys, G- glad to be back. Yeah, I haven't talked to you since uh, Five Points, I think. Yeah, more or less, I guess so. Yeah. And you haven't been on the show since. I think it was December. Yeah, your last episode was last December, so about nine months ago. Wow, season it's been one. That long? I didn't realize it had been that long. Yep, season one, exactly. <laughs> wow. Welcome back. Thank you. You guys are doing a good job. I, I'm not a regular listener, but I've listened to a few episodes, and they're they're that- they're very entertaining. To be fair, you weren't a listener when you were on it either. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, it sounds like he's listening more now than when he was actually on the show. Yeah, <laughs> I, I used to be such a techie when I was younger. I used to have all my all my music on my computer, and I had everything in order. And it's like, I in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have all my podcasts ready to listen to, and I'm going to listen to them in the car, or I'm going to listen to them when I'm down at Mothership in the store or something. And we did listen to a couple episodes in the store, like when I had RX-7 in Philadelphia painting and working. He and I listened to a couple episodes. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. I'm just not that, you know, I'm not that organized usually. And then this last year, like I've gone, our apartment was completely destroyed by a burst water pipe. Ugh. And so that's made me even more disorganized. Yeah, oh, that's understandable. That's it sounds like a total yeah. pain he has to deal with. And, I mean, speaking of dealing just with water damage and stuff like that, I want to send out condolences to anyone who's been dealing, either directly impacted or know someone who's been impacted by all the recent just crazy weather stuff going on, the the hurricanes. And I know there's another one that's uh, gearing up to hit Florida this weekend and earthquakes and all that crazy stuff. So, you know, condolences and positive vibes and thoughts to anyone dealing with that kind of sort of craziness. And actually last weekend um, – one of the members of the Lulu Bell family, actually part owner of Lulu Bell, Luke Rook. He's also better known as Grody Shogun. Well, he woke up um, at 4 a.m. one night in his apartment, and his apartment was completely engulfed in flames. And oh, my God. somehow, miraculously, he was able to escape the building and uh, make it out alive. But he's apparently suffered some pretty bad smoke and chemical inhalation. So I don't know exactly the extent of that, but it sounds like he's safe and he's on the mend. So... Um, so the, the Lulubelle family and everyone, you know, our hearts with it, are with you. Wow. Yeah, I hope he'll be okay. I'm glad he was able to wake up, you know, like, I mean, yeah. that's the crazy part. Four in the morning, yeah. I would have slept right through something like that. I think most people would, or the smoke inhalation would have slowly put them to a, a deeper sleep. So um, very fortunate. He's very, very fortunate to have gotten out, you know, alive and glad he's doing well. But I had them want to start off the show on a, on a down note. So, uh, um Let's kind of pick it up a little bit. And, yeah, let's um... keep it lighthearted. <laughs> you mentioned um, Aaron put the Mars in Marsham. So, I, you know, I wasn't there kind of when uh, Marsham uh, kind of gets started. Were you all part of sort of the creation of what is Marsham today? I mean, where where did that name come from? Is it literally just Martian toys and ham? 
smushed together. I think so. Gary, you kind of came up with the name. Is that right? You just kind of yeah. took the two and put them together. Yeah, I tried a bunch of different combinations of, you know, mashing our, our names together or store name and last name. And, and that's what I came up with. But I mean, I guess, Teresa, to give you some backstory, I, I don't think you're familiar with the history. Like, um, let's see, March 2016 was is when the show actually started. We were both originally we were supposed to be on the Blind Box Network. There was a we both you know Aaron and I were, were both in, kind of in contact with the the host of that show GM, uh, and he was wanting to do like an offspring you know episode for his network. Um, so he contacted both Aaron and I and uh, wanted us to do a show together. And and actually I'm not even sure I, I don't. Aaron, I don't recall us actually having ever spoken before the first recording, did we? No, not really. I think we we were both, I think he had us both back on the blind box maybe once to kind of talk about the introduction of the show. And then originally, uh, Teresa, that show was supposed to be about the history of designer toys. And oh, okay. uh, well, Gary, and I guess I did too, we both felt it was kind of a little bit limiting. Like we were afraid we'd run out of material if we were just kind of had to keep it about the history of designer toys because let's be honest we're talking what 13 14 year history i mean unless yeah. you stretch it back and you know maybe you can call some other stuff designer toys george you can pop in and if you feel there's something before 14 years ago that would qualify as a yeah. designer toy yeah i i just felt it was gonna be really research extensive like the the history of the designer toy scene isn't all that well documented and you have to really just really dig deep to find out the stuff. And I knew we were going to have to have guests on to kind of help fill in those gaps. And at the time, GM, the host of uh, Blind Mac Next Work, you know, he was, you know, really excited about doing the show. But I think the more I got into it, the more I realized, like, I had a different idea and vision of the show than he was originally having. Like, and um, once I kind of started mentioning that I wanted to have guests on the show, um, he wasn't too excited about that because he already had his show going, going on and he was interviewing uh, people within the scene on his show and he thought maybe there was gonna be some conflict so I didn't want to uh, run into any sort of conflict so at the time I just said well let's just you know let's just not do the show then um, but then myself and Aaron and, and Tyler Ham, um, he was actually another host on the show he's gonna be covering like more resident bootleg side of the scene we, we kept talking we're like well maybe we can do this on ourselves and not do it on a network and just so we did the research figured out how to start a podcast and we've been doing it for a year and a half now oh well now I get I mean Cause I always knew I always knew the logo was a Marsh and then Ham obviously merged together. So mm-hmm. I figured it had something to do with that too. Well, there you go. Now you got the history. Putting the pieces together. Yeah, I mean that's pretty much that's that's the puzzle right there. So I guess let's let's get back in touch with Aaron a little bit and you know rekindle and find out what he's been up to. So Aaron, I know coming up in November is the one year anniversary of Mothership Gallery, right? Yeah, November third will be the one year anniversary. Um, yeah, it's. Um, you got any big plans? No, not really. We're just we're just gonna. Um, our, our manager uh, Alex uh, Rivera, aka Playful Girl, he recently resigned, and so we are in looks for a new manager. So we're sort of, uh, you know, managerless right now. But we have a show, like, currently there's a show going on. It was Mike Effects, Who Are You? And then there's a show August 23rd with Firehead Designs. Um, Caesar, he's doing a show that's sort of, it's not just a solo show. It's sort of an exhibition of uh, what you can do as far as 3D printing and designer toys. So that should be fun. But um, no, no anniversary show planned. I think we're going to do, like, a... 
We're going to do like a Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas themed all mashed together show after after Caesar's show in September. Then in October, because because October and November, you know, there's obviously New York Comic Con and Designer Con. And without a manager, it's just too much work for a couple people to take on. So in order to kind of just, you know, keep our head above water, we're just going to do this kind of massive show. It's called Merry Halloweenness. And it's basically going to be like Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and even New Year's Eve themed <laughs> toys. And it's going to be cash and carry. And so stuff's going to be floating in on the wall and going out and coming in. And it's going to be kind of a different sort of show. And that's just because, like I said, you know, New York Comic Con is October 5th or 8th and Designer Con is, is November 11th through 12th. So it's, um, it's a yeah. lot to try to Juggle. Yeah, you're right in the middle of con season. I can see where it would be a pain in the butt to kind of manage, you know, a monthly show on top of that. So that makes sense. And did you mention it was cash and carry too? Yeah. I mean, I, how how does that work? So I know a lot of artists when they, you know, agree to do a show and something like that, that their kind of expectations are to get, you know, exposure and eyeballs on their stuff for at least a month. So I know when stuff is cash and carry, someone comes in and, and buys something and they immediately take it home with them. So the artists might not get the exposure. So um, how do artists feel about that that arrangement? Um, no one's complained yet. I mean, I know that uh, Clutter does it for Christmas. They have a cash and carry show for Christmas every year, and you know that the thing that's the thing about Christmas shows is like, you know, you know, if you're gonna buy a Christmas themed toy, it's basically like a Christmas ornament, right? right. So it's sure. like you're not gonna really probably have your Christmas themed toys on display that much after Christmas, are you? I don't know. That's a good question. Like Teresa, do you have do you have like Christmas themed toys like? on your shelf year round no i actually kind of avoid seasonal toys for that reason because i like to have my toys out year round and if they're seasonal it feels weird so no don't you feel like halloween though is like become sort of like a halloween's become bigger than just october 31st i feel like you can kind of leave your halloween toys out year round well, Halloween's like fall, right? Like, I think yeah. people might start about now. Maybe for me, I'm probably like the month of October. And then they might stay around for a bit because I don't have, like, Thanksgiving toys. So I'll probably leave those out for a bit. And then maybe, like, after Thanksgiving is when Christmas kind of comes out. Yeah. But I'm kind of the same. Actually, with the Halloween, I'm with you, Aaron. So the, I think that the as far as toys go, I think the Halloween theme stuff is it's bigger than just the 31st. I think most collectors of that genre and style of toy, I think they're going to keep it out year round. But and at least that's what I do. But I do have like you know Halloween decorations that I get from like Target, like the candy bowls and the yeah. you know and stuff like that that I do bring out just for the season, just for the one or two months. And then once Halloween's over, I take it down. And then, but, um, so I totally agree with you, but I, I don't want to get off track with the uh, Halloween. We, I can talk about that on, on an entire episode. So, okay. um, Aaron, let's get back to you and the mothership. So let's get down to the nitty gritty then. So mm-hmm. mothership's been around for almost a year now, and this is your first brick and mortar location. So like, how, how has the experience been? Has it met your expectations and how has it been received by the, the Philly community? Um, you know, it's, I wish I could I could give you an answer in a like in a sort of a we didn't have a perfect uh, test model because of certain things that happened that I've mentioned and I haven't mentioned like my apartment being completely destroyed by water obviously that's I haven't brought my A game to Philly and then our our manager had some some things in his life so I, I would say the first six months we were kind of ahead of schedule um, 
the second six months, I don't know if it's us or if maybe it's just the nature of retail. I mean, retail is, you know, brick and mortar retail, whether you're talking any industry is, I mean, it's, it's dying. Amazon is swallowing up everything. And so you, you can't ignore that factor in it. But I mean, I feel like, let me, let me answer it this way. If you were to ask me, could a brick and mortar designer toy store work in Philadelphia? The answer is absolutely yes. But there's certain things that have to happen for that to work. So where we go with the store next year, I'm not sure. Uh, the lease is up in March. I haven't made a decision yet whether we'll, we'll keep it going or not. I mean, I'm, I'm batting around a few different ideas right now. Maybe one is just kind of run it like clutter where it's just like a, a weekend gallery for people to come in on the weekends. Um, another option is to kind of run it like a sort of like a brick and mortar Etsy where local artists could come and set up their own little, you know, micro stalls and have have different artists that are semi related to the designer toy world, but maybe a little bit broader than just designer toys. And then, you know, another option is just plug on for another year and see if a year without a flood and a year without a few other issues that we had, maybe things would be better. Um now, are you speaking so, just talking about the retail side of it? Is that also including the gallery side of it as well? The gallery side, the gallery, the shows have always gone pretty well. I mean, you know, they haven't been sell out the first night, but we've always managed to sell a, a good portion of the pieces in the event, and so that's always been, you know, a positive. Um, people come out to the shows. The the regular customers who who like you know customs and, and that that goes well. Uh, the retail stuff, it's hard. I mean, because, you know, people can go, you can go online, you can go on eBay, you can go on Amazon, you you can go on Martian Toys or any of the, you know, what, there's 12 or 14 online designer toy stores. And most of the collectors, they know them all. And, you know, they'll look around and say, oh, does, does so-and-so have this, what's their price? And do they have the green variant? Or, oh, do they have this? <laughs> do they have the exclusive? Right. So the, the hardcore collectors, they know where they're going to get their stuff anyway. And, you, you know, you get a certain amount of people who'll walk in, they'll buy like, you know, mis, you know Funko Mystery Minis, or you'll get the Pine Size Heroes, or, you know, you get, you know, Blind Box Dunny sales. I, I don't know. Like it's someone suggested to me, maybe the, the key to that kind of thing is be uh, a cart in a mall. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, you know, you, you have to focus whatever you do in life you know, you have to focus and, you know, the retail was sort of, uh, it was always an excursion for me or it is an excursion for me. Um, if, if I get the right manager slash partner in there, who's passionate about it and wants to continue, then, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's totally fair enough. I mean, it sounds like you're just dealing with, with, any company starting up, you're just you're still figuring things out and uh, growing your sea legs. So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like lots of – I like the Etsy idea. Well, like the idea, I guess, of people being able to kind of show off their work. It's an intriguing concept. I mean, I feel like one of the things you're really good about, Aaron, is elevating different artists. Like you are one of the few people that I'm aware of in the scene that brings all sorts of different people in to attempt to create customs for shows or highlight them as artists or what have you. And I, I don't know, I feel like you're really good about sort of picking out artists that are sort of like, Hey, these, you know, you may not know them, but I think they're doing really cool stuff. We should keep an eye on them and like, see what they can do. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Like feathered Fox, 
Schultz and uh, Heather Hyatt and like some of those smaller custom artists that are out there. Um, I feel like because of Martian Toys, like I kind of saw their stuff a little bit and was like, oh, they are doing some pretty cool stuff. And you're able to like, you're really good at supporting that. I mean, is that something that you can feel yourself continuing to do, like keep elevating different artists out there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just, I think that's kind of just in my nature to like kind of root for the underdog and to like, and I like discovering new things even beyond just toy artists, but you know, especially toy artists. And, um, you know, I, I, I always remind these artists, it's like, hey, you know, at some point, you know, Chris Reiniak or Doc A or Joe Ledbetter or Jeff Soto, these guys, at one point, no one had heard of them either. So yep. uh, everyone starts somewhere. So it's not about where you are. It's about how much work you put into it and how much talent you have. Yeah, for sure. Is there any um, new artists lately that you've kind of caught your eye on that you're you feel like are good ones for people to go check out? Well, you mentioned Heather Hyatt. I mean, she's she's a great example of uh, somebody that maybe, you know, hasn't been in the scene that long, and now people are seeing her work and taking notice. Um, somebody that, actually, she has a huge following, but she really wasn't in the designer toy world, per se, is, uh, her name is Leah. She goes by Little Lazies. I don't know if you guys follow her or not. Yeah, I'm familiar, yeah. Follow her play. Dove, uh, DKE or Disperse, they did a, a little release at San Diego Comic-Con with her, and I think he's got something planned with her for New York Comic-Con as well. So, uh, you know, somebody like that in the, in the same sort of breath is Heather, I would say. Um, uh, somebody, uh, a Spanish artist that, you know, I just became aware of, and, and I hate to say somebody's, like, unknown or little because it's all relative, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, I don't know how Leah or, or Heather feels. Like, they might say, hey, I, I'm known. I have X amount of 1,000 followers, so... Right. It, it's all relative, but another person that uh, caught my eye recently is uh, her name is uh, Paula. She's from Spain, and her Instagram handle is Terror Garden. Terror know? Garden, like T E R R O R Garden. Yep, exactly. Okay. And uh, you know, she's in this kind of sort of dark comic phase right now, and it's really cool. But she also has, if you if you scroll back through her Instagram feed, she has like a couple different, entirely different styles. She's incredibly talented. Um, oh, another artist that, that I really like is uh, Defective Pudding, uh, Krista. Uh, Defective Pudding is like a kind of, she reminds me of like a, a, like a sort of a Gary Baseman in the raw. I, I wouldn't say she's copying Gary Baseman, but I, I just think something about her style reminds me of Gary Baseman a lot. She actually lives fairly close to Philadelphia, so I've actually got to meet her. She's a really sweet person, and uh, you know, I've, I've invited her to several shows now. She's, she's awesome. Uh, oh, another one I, I really like is uh, Cernaretta. She's from Turkey. Her stuff is really good. Uh, you should check that out as well. Now, you've always been like a purveyor of customs. I know when Dragatomi was around, they were really big into supporting artists just like you, as yourself. And a lot, you know, a lot of their the San Diego Comic-Con booths and whatnot would just be filled with customs. And you very much kind of carried that torch. Uh, when they left off, it seems like then you just popped up. And now you're very much heavy into you know supporting the customizing side of the scene and the, you know, the upcoming artists. And you're also doing the, um, the blank contest. The, um, the next the next great blank toy contest. Yeah. So yeah. so how's that been going? I know the deadline for the contest doesn't end until like the end of, you know, October. But how have the entries been so far? Have you been receiving a lot of submissions? Well, there there hasn't been a lot of submissions, but 
I would say everything that's come through has been really good quality stuff. Um, I know how you feel, Gary, about what, what exactly a blank or a, a canvas, a toy canvas are. And I, I think you would probably disqualify probably more than half of them because <laughs> they, they aren't quote unquote blank enough. Right. And, you know, kind of like one person really can't like, and I'll, when I say one person, I'm talking about myself. I, I really can't dictate where the scene is going or, or the trends. Like I can just sort of observe and watch and stuff. So it, it seems to me like something like a, a metal or a dunny or a money uh, it's there. I don't know if we're going to see that again. Like I think, when those came about, there was a sort of an economic reason why Kid Robot produced the Dunny or produced the money. Like they, you know, they they wanted to make a mold that they could reuse and and ask different artists to to paint on it. But as you know, the Dunny now has become the last few series. They're most of them are heavily sculpted, right? And uh, you know, Kid Robot isn't restricted by like sort of like oh, we can only spend X amount of dollars making this Dunny series. Like you know, they're going to make the Dunny series that they want, and and Dunny's become sort of like a intellectual property more than a platform, more than like a blank canvas. It's now like something people collect, and so it has equity. Just the Dunny name, and the, and you know what is it? Thirteen years of collecting Dunnies, like they know they're going to get X amount of purchases, yeah, no matter what they do. So and 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 you know I guess they feel like well the paint only thing. I mean I know the DTA Dunny series which you were featured in. There was more paint onlys in that series than have been in the last what six or seven series combined. But in general, back to your question about the blank, is I'm seeing people interpret what a blank is as different than like a money. Like the you know I think Huck Gee's blank, which is I always felt was like it's a cool toy, but the name always sort of bugged me because it doesn't seem blank enough. But I I think basically people disagree with me i think people consider that a blank and they can say the things that have been submitted so far have been along that lines where they're you know sculpted faces with features and mm-hmm. and you know they're blank in the sense that they're unpainted but they're right right that's about all it makes them blank interesting why did you decide to call it the blank contest instead of like the next blank great blank instead of the next great platform? Because isn't that essentially what you're kind of searching for is the next great platform? Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'd like to, you know, that's one of my goals. I don't know if we can achieve it or not, but it would be great to have like a platform, you know, that Martian Toys could produce. And then every year we have three or four or 10 or 12 artists uh, do their own color variant on that platform. But I don't, I think it's a little presumptuous to call it a platform until until you've actually achieved that, it's I, okay. You know, I get that. Yeah, it's kind of like if you if a you know uh, a screenwriter comes up with a great movie and says, "Oh, this is a you know when Avatar came out, it's like oh the Avatar franchise." Well, it's I don't really think it's a franchise until you've at least made two of them, right? So uh, it's kind of like that. I mean, yes, hopefully the blank contest winner becomes something that we can use. We can make pad prints and we can we can make color variants, you know, over the years, like different yeah. different ones, but. I, you know, as leader of Martian Toys, like, I'm not going to just count on this contest to deliver that platform. I, I'm exploring other avenues on how to achieve that as well. Now, let me ask you this. You said you were receiving a lot of stuff that I probably wouldn't consider blank. Are you receiving submissions that you're a toy producer? Are you receiving submissions that you're seeing that, hey, maybe this won't work as a blank, but this is possibly something I would like to produce outside of the contest? 
Yeah, there's some there's been some cool pieces. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna like show them all off uh, closer to the deadline. The deadline's October thirtieth. So I'll start showing some of the submissions. Okay. Um I I'll also ask the artists if they're okay with me, you know, showing them on social media just to make sure, you know, maybe some people want their submissions to be secret. Um <laughs> Because there are a couple of big names, so maybe they would feel like, well, if they don't win, maybe they don't want to be known as somebody that didn't win the contest. Right. Like, oh, well, X artist should have won this contest. You know, can you believe he lost or she lost to so and so? That guy's, you know, he's yeah. only got two thousand followers, and sure. and and she's got, you know, seventy thousand followers. How how did you know? How did she lose? You know, like I don't know. So I don't know how much people care about that kind of stuff. Um, well, I think it's a great opportunity. I think it's a cool concept, you know, a good thing that you're doing. Uh, I hope something great comes out of it. And I look forward to seeing who the winner is come, what, November? Uh, December 1st. December 1st. So it ends yeah. on October 30th and we have to 30th. wait all the way till December? Yeah, because, you know, all seven judges are going to need time to, to look through all this. True. Um, you know, I would say, we, I mean, I haven't counted. I don't have a count for you tonight, but I would say it's around maybe 25 submissions so far. Okay. 25, 30 submissions, somewhere around there. Yeah, I mean, it's not you don't want to rush something like that, especially if it's going to be something you want to put into production for the next X amount of years. You know, it's like this is something that you need to really look at and figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do share them on social because when we were talking about the blank contest, Aaron, um, I was saying how I think it'd be fun because, like, we all, I guess, as, as fans of the toy community could help maybe, you know, give – give opinions and perceptions of like which one we as a, in the toy community would, would kind of want to see happen. So maybe that could help persuade the judges to uh, lean one way or another. If everyone's rooting for a specific. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't hurt to have like some comments here and there on Facebook and Instagram. I've also known that I know from just like, you know, from sales, like sometimes you know, an artist could have 20,000 Instagram followers and another artist could have 3,000 followers. But those 3,000 followers of the of the other artists, they might have act, more actual customers. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's, you know, it, sometimes the comments, people will say, oh, I love that. But that doesn't necessarily mean it makes it more of a commercially viable product than the person it's just interesting like that i mean uh you know i mean you you guys follow the kickstarters i mean there's been you know there's been kickstarters by by artists that didn't have a big following and and their kickstarter succeeded and there's been kickstarters by artists that had a huge following and and they didn't succeed i mean you know it's i don't know it's it's facebook your your facebook friends or followers or your instagram followers it's like it doesn't necessarily it doesn't equate. It's not an an exact uh, translation to customer, customer, or yeah, or even sure. you know commercial. You know you can't you can't judge it totally by by that. You know, For, from someone who has made a, a blank a platform blank toy before, uh-huh. uh, my first and only point of advice would be, if it's got features, get rid of them. Yep. Um, get rid of if it's got eyes get rid of the eyes because you're trying to make a blank platform and you don't want to dictate where eyes go uh, one, of, one of the first things that changed from series one Gwen to series two Gwen was we got rid of the eyes totally agree 
but what do you so George, what do you think of, of Huck's blank then? I mean that's been It's stupid, a pretty it's just an unpainted figure. Yeah, but I mean, calls <laughs> it's it not a blank. it's not a blank platform toy. I don't care that, what anybody says. That's been very successful, like, you know, pretty successful. You know, like they they've had so, two by successful two doesn't mean channels. he sold ten like he said on his blog or actually sold a bunch. I don't know how many sold. That's true, but um, I mean, I know. Well, what's that the first thing everybody does problem. when they customize it? Do they get rid of the face, or do they just fill in the face? Like, you don't want a face on it, dude. You just—it's mm -hmm. one thing I can definitely recommend. I mean, and it could be, maybe your first series has the face the way we did it, you know, and then the second series you realize, oh crap, we should get rid of that sculpted face. I it's, I it's like true. you personally. I like blanks. I like a blank. Can't I like the idea of giving a, a painter. Uh, another art, uh, Teresa, you mentioned other artists that I, I saw. There's an artist named uh, Dustin Ballard. You can look him up. And he's a painter. He's never touched a toy in his life. Uh, but I invited him to the to the show that we're doing for New York Comic Con because because the the piece we're doing it's it's uh it's called Break. It's a skull by an artist from Indonesia named Bowo. So we call it the Bowo skull, and it's about the size of a grapefruit, and it does have some features, but it's more blank, quote unquote, than than Huck's skull or, or some other skulls. And uh, it's exciting when you have something that's got a lot of smooth surface on it. You know, you feel more uh, at liberty to give that to an to like a traditional canvas painter than you would if it was like something heavily sculpted. So I personally, like you, George, I love. I love smooth surfaces. I, I like. I, lo I love the mod model model. I think that's Jeremy's. You know, that's a perfect. That's a perfect blank. And, and right. of course, the money and the dunning are too. It's just. I mean, when you know the younger artists today, like that's just not. That's just not what they're doing, and that's not what collectors are. They're not. You know, you're always going to have your dunny collectors because there's a certain amount of momentum behind dunnies. Like, thirteen years of collection has made it so. You know, there's equity in that. But, like, when you look around at what, other than Dunny, what people are buying, and you're seeing stuff that is not what you would call a blank or what I would call a blank. Yeah, it's, but I, I feel yeah, like the stuff that you're I, talking about is it's just a good toy that's just a blank. They just did a, a, an unpainted colorway. But I feel like, I still feel like something that's going to be customized needs to be as blank and featureless as possible. Like, just great shapes that someone can either like when you're talking about just applying paint to or if someone wants to use it as an armature and then sculpt over it then great too but i, I think you need to approach both avenues of customizers rather than just focusing on one because like how many times aaron have you invited me to a custom show and i saw the platform and i turned it down because i told you it's like that's too detailed for me it's, i feel like it's paint by numbers and i already feel restricted by the amount of detail well, that's on that that sculpt I, I agree with both about, of you. I mean, think about what Course just did with the omens. I mean, they just put out what they equate to DIY omens, and it's that same thing. It's the omen body with blank faces, with just eyes or just a beak or nothing at all, with the ability for people to kind of envision what they want or doodle on it or paint on it or what have you. So I, I kind of agree. I mean, customizing isn't something I've really done, but I could see how the more detail in it, the less you'd be able to envision how to adjust it unless you are kind of heavy into sculpting and willing to sort of, you know, put a bunch of clay on top to start fresh. But if you're more exactly. of a painter, yeah. 
you know, I, I can see how you could be, you could be stuck a little bit with it not being as simplistic, but I don't know. I, I, but I also think about like, um, the one that Tomodachi Island did the, um, you would know, Aaron, it was the one you all did for ToyCon UK, the little baby Colossus. Yeah. Yeah. Like that to me, I think that's almost like a good happy medium because it's it's still simplistic with the ability to evolve it, but it does have a bit of feature to it that kind of makes it cute on its own. Mm-hmm. And I thought that translated decently well, so I don't know. I, I can kind of see both sides, but I completely understand the concept of sort of tailoring it back so that there's more freedom from an artist's perspective to sort of do or mold it or change it to kind of their vision. I mean, one of the reasons I did this contest was for this very discussion we're having is is I noticed that, you know, like what Gary and George are saying about, you know, a really blank, smooth surface is that is what a, a blank toy is, what a DIY toy is supposed to be. And and that's sort of the, you know, that's the that's one school of thinking. But then there's another school of thinking. And and I made myself only one of the seven judges for the contest because you know, I, I I like the idea of like opening this uh, this up to a, a discussion about, you know, I mean, the industry has changed. You know, back when the Dunny and the Money were first invented, they created. It wasn't like um, there wasn't that many people out there that were sculpting and resin casting, and you know, there's a lot more people that know how to do a lot more today than they didn't than they did, you know, 12, 13 years ago. So because of that, you know, you have to kind of go with the times. You know, it's like uh, Rob from Suburban Vinyl said one time, he says, I won't say who, which company he was referring to. He says, the problem with X is it's a bunch of 50-year-old white guys making toys for 50-year-old white guys. And so I don't want to be accused of that. I want Martian Toys to be a company that makes toys that, you know, as many people as possible want that, you know, with the one caveat is, is like, I'm not pursuing licenses right now. Like, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's more like loyal subjects, Jonathan, Kathy, like I'm not, you know, I don't have the, the, you know, the money or, or even the interest in, in pursuing like a teenage mutant into turtle license or anything like that. I'm, I'm not trying to be mainstream. I'm just also trying to not just make necessarily what I think should be made. I'm trying to make stuff that, you know, as many people who, who like you, Teresa, who like designer toys are going to be like, yeah, this is, this is what I like. This isn't like something, you know, from, you know, for instance, a dude box, that was another platform and the dude box just completely failed. Right. And that was a very blank toy and, and that failed. So, um, Hey, we'll see where this contest goes. Yeah. Yeah. All good points. Yep. Yeah, this might be something we might carry over onto the stomping ground and get some feedback on it too. But I think we talked about it enough on the podcast, so let's move along to something else. Before we do that, let's take a brief moment and mention some of our sponsors. So for all your daily designer toy needs and desires, we've got two great shops for you, strangecattoys.com and 3dretro.com. If you head on over to strangecattoys.com, be sure to use promo code MARSHAM at checkout to receive 10% off your entire order. Also, there's 3DRetro.com and 3D Retro brick and mortar location out there in beautiful Southern California. They do amazing stuff, great owners, uh, great store, great events. So if you're in Southern California, be sure to check that out. 
And for all your daily designer toy news, you'll definitely want to check out and bookmark SpankyStokes.com and TheToyChronicle.com. And actually, this, uh, TheToyChronicle.com also released an app recently, so if that's something you're into, you can search The Toy Chronicle on any of your app stores, and uh, away you go. All right, so let's get back to Aaron. And so, Aaron, I, I'm noticing that the landscape or the marketing landscape of the toy scene is changing a bit. It's, it's been a lot more direct-to-market. Uh, there's also been a, a, a more heavy lean on doing pre-orders. So as a retailer, like, how do you feel about pre-orders? I personally hate pre-orders. Like, uh, I just, you know, as a retailer, I don't really, I don't really enjoy. I, I put put a few things up for for pre-order, but you know, there's companies that are a lot more on it as far as like, soon as something's announced, they've got it up for pre-order. And there's three companies in particular, and. You know, all the collectors, they know the three companies that get the pre-orders up, you know, 2 a.m. Something gets announced, it's on the it's on those three websites at 2 a.m. And, and that's good. I, I just don't I, – I, I kind of don't see the point of that. I mean, I'm not criticizing them per se. I just think, well, to me, if you're going to have a store like Mothership, it's like the idea to have a store is to have a place for people to go and sort of look at everything and kind of touch it and feel it and stuff like that. So if you're just – I mean, if we're just getting to the point where we're doing pre-orders, uh, I, I, you know, I, I mean, as far just, as being an online store, though, I mean, is it a hindrance to do the early pre-order sales? I mean, it seems like you might be missing out on some some orders or at least missed opportunities by not doing the pre-orders. Yeah, well, like I said, you can only do so much in a day. You can only like, I mean, that's part of the reason I, I'm not on the podcast every week. It's like, you know, there's only so much of me to go around and so you know yeah I, I probably am missing a certain amount of sales but keep in mind if a toy is very popular and i've ordered those and i don't put those up for instance uh Teresa mentioned the, the course toys well I, you know martian toys ordered a significant quantity of those all of my contemporaries they put those up for pre-order like immediately i have not put those up and because i missed the boat on that i'm not worried though because when they come out and everyone starts getting their pre-orders in the mail and they're like, oh, I wish I ordered that. Well, I know I'm going to sell those omens. Like, they'll all sell. So when you have a really popular toy, like anything made by Jermaine Rogers, any course figures, those are going to sell anyway. So whether I put them for pre-order or not, I'm going to move them. Uh, most Tokidoki stuff, if I order anything from Tokidoki, it's, it's, it's eventually going to sell. And... The danger, I guess the danger of not doing pre-order and ordering something is if if it sort of has a mild interest, then there's maybe there's only 50 sales for, we'll make up a toy. We'll call it Angry Elephant by XYZ Company. Well, if the Angry Elephant's kind of sort of like some people, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe there's only 50 people in the whole country who want that. So, okay, so I'm going to miss out on that pre-order. And then if I've ordered eight of them, well, I might have trouble selling them. But then that's where my other skill comes into play, and that's the customizing. You know, I'll send, I'll find a new artist to send that to, and have them customize it, and hopefully sell it that way. You know, get back at least get back more than I paid for for it at the time wholesale. Okay, that, that's that's my thinking. I mean, yeah, you, you're right. I could be leaving money on the table. I always say like like when I release a production toy. It, typically, you know, Gary, you've had productions. Like, do you always do an artist-proof series? Like, do you do your own limited edition of ten? Like, when the Sylvan came out, did you do your own no. artist edition? No. Well, no. you left. You just did what I do with pre-orders. You left money on the table. If you took ten of those and you just painted a red nose on all of them, and then you, 
and you added fifty dollars to the price, you would have sold those. So you left money on the table. Uh, Jason, no, that's just scam. That's just scamming my fan base. I wouldn't do that. No, but you don't understand. You're hardcore fans. Like, do you know how many people begged me to try to beg Jason Lamone into doing an artist proof series of the snow cone and. Jason wasn't interested in doing it. And and that's fine. I accept it. I, I'm not really interested in doing pre-orders. So I get it. But like Jason left money on the table. There were people that wanted him to take a cherry snow cone and just add a little bit of extra, you know, okay. artist yeah, I, I get- to the to thing. And, and you sure. leave money. You know, anytime an artist has their own production toy and they don't do an artist series of 10, I'm not saying do an artist series of 50 because that sort of defeats the purpose of a production. But um, if you, I mean, I think 10, you know, your hardcore fans, you know, I bet if, you know, you had a new toy coming out next year and you, you said, Oh, I'm going to take this one. And, you know, say the accessory was like a lunchbox and you were to hand paint the lunchbox a different color. I bet you Teresa would want one of those. Well, Teresa's would... crazy. <laughs> no, but, no, but seriously, you're I mean, right. You... Yeah, I've never actually, I've never actually thought about doing it with my own releases. For some reason, when you receive 500 of something, you don't really think about, oh, I'm going to set 10 aside and do something special with it. But when I receive like a, you know, 10 APs from a Dunny or maybe an Android teaser or something, then yeah, I feel like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do something special with those and sell those. But I've never done it with my own release. And I guess in that sense, and yeah, I'm missing an opportunity and leaving money on the table. Uh, you totally should, Gary. It reminds me of when Squink uh, <laughs> took some of his tigers and he repainted the eyes on them. So, yeah, like, you know, it's about Squink's, like, super detailed eyes. And so the, I mean, I'm talking about his, his pretty old Dunny. And he's actually done some full-on customs of, of Ken in, in various colors. But he's, he's even taken the straight-up orange Dunny and literally just repainted the features to be more detailed in his kind of more detailed style. And Gary, like, come on now. Imagine if you did that. Or even, like, took some of your DTA dunnies and did, like, a different colorway, like, repainted it in a different colorway. You have – people have no idea how much time that would take. I, I, have, I have a weekly podcast to do. I can't be doing that. Oh, no. fish pie. Okay. I will take I mean, it's, it's either podcast or customs. I have no time for both. That's how I feel about pre-orders. It's like, you know, you know, several of my friends who have their own stores, they, they, they run a mean pre-order game. And, like – I'm happy for them. You know, my ultimate goal, I would love to just be able to make, you know, 15, 20 toys a year and let somebody else handle, you know, taking all the orders. Like right. that, that that would be fine with me. Okay. So that covers the pre-orders, but how about the new direct to market approach that the scene has been taken? Uh, I remember there was a time that I would say majority of the stuff was being wholesaled directly to the stores, either through the artists or through you know a distribution channel, like like the DKE, for example. I remember there was a time when you were receiving the um, distribution emails from them, and every day it seemed like there was a new designer toy being offered up for wholesale. Uh, those emails are still coming through on a, almost a daily basis, but very rarely is there ever a designer toy you know being wholesale to that you know the wholesale channel so i imagine the direct market has to be impacting the scene somehow yeah that that's that's a concern it, it is very impactful you that's why that's why i have a, a retail store a brick and mortar store and that's why i do online retail is because of what you said because the distribution system is kind of broke right now and wholesale rising costs in china rising costs of shipping it's squeezing all the numbers you know there used to be i mean Maybe like a couple years ago, what I'm about to say would be considered sort of passe, but 
I think like almost all the cats are out of the bag now. So I might as well just let's let the listeners hear the whole the way the whole thing is. So usually there's three price points. There's there's a manufacturing cost, obviously. There's a wholesale cost, and then there's a retail cost. And then occasionally you'll get, you know, you'll get a special sale price like at a Comic-Con or something like that. But generally you have three prices. Well, what's happening in the designer toy world is that medium price, that wholesale price is just going away because the cost of manufacturing and the cost of freight from Asia is going up so much that no one can afford to wholesale them. They've got to sell them direct. And so we have what I termed the rise of the vertical market fiefdoms of the designer toy world. And uh, I'm not trying to like criticize anyone. I'm just observing that like, you know, you're getting companies like Unbox that they make toys and they market those toys and they sell those toys directly. And there's very little wholesaling done. You know, they're straight from the factory, straight to the consumer, sort of the Dell computer model of the 1980s, but now applied to designer toys. Right. And I want to, I want to talk about that real quick. You just mentioned Unbox. And so I want to touch a little bit on what's going on in the East right now. Like, they are booming. I mean, it really seems like the East is having – it's almost – it feels like something different is going on in the East than what's going on here in the West. Uh, I, I don't know how to explain it, but the, the level of productions seem to be exceptional. There uh, seems to be bar none above the rest of the productions going on. Uh, just this weekend alone, there was the Beijing Toy Show and the – I'm sorry – Last weekend, by the time this released, it'll have been last weekend. So there was the Beijing Toy Show and the Singapore Toy Games and Comic Conventions. Yeah. And I'm sure um, there's going to be lines wrapped around the building because a lot of the Eastern producers are having exclusive colorways and announcing new toys. And it just seems like I'm sure over the weekend we'll have seen a lot of artists saying, sell out, sell out, sell out. Because that's what we've been seeing from the East. A lot of producers are just having consistent sellout releases. And that's phenomenal. And that's something to watch and admire. But being a U.S. collector, I've noticed it's been very hard to get our hands on that sort of stuff. So as a retailer, are you able to get your hands on any of the stuff that the collector base needs to be clamoring for? Almost never. Like, you know, like somebody that you mentioned on a couple podcasts back, or maybe it's been five or six, Casing Lung. Um, yeah. I saw his stuff when I was in Tokyo uh, this summer, and I love his characters. I have tried. Like combination of language barrier and the combination of like i mentioned before there's no middle price there's no wholesale price you, you know in other industries you know the markup is could be 700 yeah. percent so if, like if you go into macy's if you're a guy and you go and you buy a mid-tier dress shirt you buy a hundred dollar dress shirt there's more expensive dress shirts there's cheaper ones but if you buy a hundred dollar dress shirt at macy's that dress shirt probably cost macy's 20 bucks maybe 15 and it costs the factory two or three bucks to make. And sometimes clothing retailers, they can even send stuff back if it doesn't sell. Okay, in the toy world, you know, going back, you know, six, eight years ago, the typical markup was 100%. 100% being if you see a $50 toy, uh, the retailer got that toy for $25. Mm-hmm. Well, now with the rise of, of the East, as, as you put it, Gary, there's no 100% markup. It's like basically they offer to the retailer, they offer it for like 20% off the retail or 30% off. But, and you think, well, gee, aren't the retailers being greedy? Can't they just buy them? And they're still going to make 20 or 30%. But what that price doesn't include is international freight. 
So uh, a certain toy that I won't mention the na our name of the artist or anything, I really wanted to carry this toy last spring. And the, re the suggested retail price was $99. And the producer was actually selling them direct. But it was going to cost it was going to cost me like eighty eight dollars, eighty nine dollars to get them landed in Philadelphia. So and and they had a minimum order of sixteen. So the problem with that, you said, well, Steve, you're still making eight or nine dollars a figure. But if you're not sure they're going to sell out, if it's Coors or Jermaine Rogers, maybe you roll the dice on it. Although although the margins are slightly better on those anyway, but. If it's something where you're not totally sure it's going to sell out, if you don't sell all of them, you're basically taking a loss. And that's what that's what I found with a lot of these new producers in the East is like they're offering you 20% or 30% off retail, but then you have to pay international freight. It's also culturally acceptable in Asia to mark up freight. So they charge you a little bit more than they're actually paying for the freight. And I guess their argument would be, just to give kind of both sides of the, since there's no one here to defend themselves, even though I'm not mentioning any names, their argument would be, well, what would happen if we only charge the exact amount, but then there's a, a customs duty charge that comes back to the company? Because that can happen. That, they, you know, Sometimes you can get a customs bill back. If I send something to China, I could get a bill back saying, oh, you owe us you know, 12 more dollars. So maybe a couple of these companies have been burned in previous years. So now they add a little bit of markup on that freight. So it's just, you know, it's a combination. Sometimes I love a toy. Some of these new toys are so amazing that I would even try to carry them in the store, even if I'm just going to break even. But because of the language barrier, I can't even get a hold of them. Right. No, I see what you're saying. And, but kind of what you're mentioning about the, the increased freight and stuff like that. I mean, isn't this what the UK has kind of been dealing with like the last – 10 or 15 years trying to get the Western toys. I mean, you always hear about how much the shipping cost is. And I know when you know UK stores have contacted me directly for wholesale, I'll give them the toy, what you said, the standard 50% uh, off of the retail price. But then they'll get hit with really steep international shipping. And what I've noticed some of the UK stores will do is they'll just add, you know, an extra 10 or $20 onto the price and just say that's because it's an imported toy. That's There's just a, a slight increase for getting it you know, landed into the UK. Why not just go that route? Well, in England, you mentioned the UK and in the, like I used to live in London. I lived in London for nine years. And so when I was there, there was one designer toy store. It was called Play Lounge. And uh, one of the guys at Play Lounge actually went and started Unbox, which is sort of an irony, isn't it? Um, but Play Lounge, they did mark up the prices. But here's the thing is they were the only game in town. The designer toy world's not that big. There's only like 12 store owners, right? If all 12 of us got together and said, okay, we're all going to mark it up, but it, it just doesn't work like that. So, yeah, and that's the problem is that you can't really mark stuff up because you'd have to get all the other, you'd have to get your competitors agree. And then that's technically called collusion, which is illegal. I don't know if the FTC would come after Tenacious Toys or Martian Toys or Strange Cat Toys if we all colluded, but. <laughs> Technically, we really, we really shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, let's not let's not collude. But you did mention something earlier. I, I, I noticed you dropped something that probably is probably just as impactful as not getting a great uh, cut on the wholesale price, and then in addition to paying a pretty steep international shipping rate, 
is that there's a minimum order quantity that you're dealing with. I imagine as a retailer, it's not very feasible to order something that has a minimum order quantity of 16 or 24 unit pieces uh, at $90 a pop. I, I have to imagine that's a lot of money, a lot of overhead to tie up into your release that you might think you might only sell in between four and 10 pieces of. I mean, is it is it across the board for the international producers to have a significant uh, number for their minimum order quantity? Well, Sometimes, sometimes it's like well, there's one company, and I, I would speak in specifics, but I, I mean, I don't know if we're there yet. Like, there's one company that sells toys. Their their typical suggested retail price is either two ninety nine or three ninety nine for most of their stuff. And a few of you out there are going to figure out who I'm talking about. Their minimum order quantity is only six, and you say, oh, only six. So I ordered toy X from them a while ago, and I've sold five of them. But the problem is I've still lost money until I sell that sixth one because it's a $300 toy. And so I, I'm not going to order six more of, of the next one because I didn't sell out of the first edition. And, and they also are selling them direct. If they weren't selling also direct and offering – and to add another insult to the injury is some of these companies, then they'll offer flat rate international shipping $14. Which means they're subsidizing the shipping. If Teresa goes online and she sees a toy and it's a $200 toy and they're offering flat rate shipping for $14 anywhere in the world, well, it's going to be cheaper her, for her to buy it from them than to sure. buy it from Strange Cat Toys or Martian Toys or, or whoever else, Fuji. You know, this, it's just... That makes sense. Why not try to do set up a pre? Yeah, why not try to? Have you ever contacted them about maybe just doing a pre-order system so you, you know, maybe you don't order unless you fulfill that minimum order quantity that they're requesting. Yes, and some of them have some of them offer that. And like I said, I'm not my pre-order game is I don't bring an a pre-order game to the table. But I even know the guys that are good at, at the pre-order game, like. The, the window for the pre-order on some of those Asian toys, it's, it's really tight. And so you put it up and you might only have 10 days to get your pre-orders before you have to tell the, you have to say yes or no. This one person, he said, okay, I want to do the pre-order. So he put the pre-order up. He didn't get enough sales. He canceled the order. So they canceled his account. And then a year or so went by and they, they, they're allowing him to buy stuff again. Huh. I mean, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's not always like that. It's not, it's not, it's not like, I don't want to say every company in Asia is doing this, but most of them are, most of them are doing at least several of the things I said. And a couple of them are doing all of the things I've mentioned. So are there examples? Yeah. There's some, like you said, there's some great toys that are coming out of, like amazing toys. Yeah. Thailand, Korea, Korea. I mean, oh my God, the Korean designers. Oh my God. The, the stuff is amazing. I mean, the Korean designers, whether you like Kawaii, whether you like urban, whether you like creepy cute, like the Koreans are like doing it all like Korea, Thailand, Taiwan. There's some really good stuff. That's going Hong Kong. Of course is always, you know, they've always been in the scene and always will be one of the main places. But I mean, there's cool stuff and they're, they're, you know, you know, I don't know. It's exhausting. <laughs> you could spend all day just looking for cool stuff to carry. Yeah. And, you know, 
Teresa mentioned like I find new artists and I do custom shows. That's I do that better than most, I guess. But I don't do as far as like sales forecasting. Like you know, there's a couple guys that that are really good at that. Be Benny from Tenacious Voice, he's really good at sales forecasting. He generally gets it right. He generally knows what's going to sell and what's not going to sell. And you know, and a couple of, and Corey's pretty good at it too. But you know, because people can buy stuff like Teresa, you live in Kentucky, right? Yeah, so I mean, there's no designer toy store in your neighborhood, so it's easier to order online. Plus, it's not just the designer toy world; though everyone's buying everything online. Like, people are yeah. buying all their groceries online now. So, I mean, online is is where it's at. And so, I guess I, I'm probably more concerned about stepping up my online game than trying to step up brick and mortar sales or step up pre-orders. I mean, I guess pre-orders are part of online, but can I ask a pre-order question real quick? Because mm -hmm. I actually didn't even know this is a thing. I don't pre-order a ton because I, I typically like to see the actual final toy. And a lot of times you have to pre-order off, you know, vector renderings or whatever. And I'm not a huge fan of that. But um, if you just, you all are talking about like quotas. Are there chances sometimes where people will put up a pre-order and people will purchase them, but then they don't meet a quota and they cancel all those orders on people? Does that happen? Yes. I did not know that. I guess I always assumed if I went in and pre-ordered, I was just getting it. <laughs> no, wasn't one of Huck's recent toys canceled? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, I'm not trying to pick on Huck. I mean, he's done some amazing stuff and he's had a lot of good toys come out. He's had a lot of stuff produced, but like one of the ones that was up for pre-order, they didn't get enough interest in it. So they canceled it. And, um, you know, one of my regular customers in Philly, he's he's the one that pointed out to me. He's like, oh, I'm really bummed because I've collected all the other figures in that series from Money Jacks, and he wasn't able to get the new one because they canceled it. Hmm. It doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. Does it, I mean, does it affect you as a retailer when you do pre-orders? I imagine it's a little risky if you do end up having to cancel an order because I know how credit card companies work. And if you accept the money and then you have to cancel orders, you're going to get dinged somehow financially for those charges or an e-commerce site or whatever. So it's got to be risky. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is because there's a, uh, I mean, every, okay, everyone has different e-commerce. I mean, man, we're really getting into, there'll be no secrets left after tonight, huh? Uh, I mean, everyone has different e-commerce engines. Uh, Martian Toys uses Shopify, which is one of the main ones. And if I do a return, say I take a pre-order and then a toy's been canceled, if I do the return within 30 days of their purchase, then that's fine. But after 30 days, there's a $15 fee for every return by Shopify. So okay. uh, yeah, you can get hit. How often it happens? I wouldn't say it happens that often, but it does happen. Yeah, that's a bummer. Well, let me ask you this, Aaron. So you've, you came into the designer toy scene as being a very enthusiastic and passionate collector. And he said, hey, I, I want to get in you know, on this toy scene. I want to help support it and produce things and sell toys. And, you know, haven't done this for, what, four years now? Do you still feel that passion and excitement now that you've seen the, the, the insides of it? Yeah, I do. I, I, yeah, unequivocally, yes. I'm still as passionate. I mean, yeah, there's, you know, there's some things that have happened that, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's always – personality clashes and conflicts and stuff. We'll leave it at that, I guess. But no, I, I, you know, like, you know, Teresa mentioned 
Heather Hyatt. Like, I think when I see somebody like Heather um, doing what she does, like, to me, it's like, this is really cool to be a, to be a witness to, if nothing else, you know, it's like, you know, that's what keeps me excited and going is like, you know, the customs and then, you know, the cool releases. I love seeing other companies do cool releases and, and, uh, you know, help sell them if I can, or sometimes they're, they're, you know, company does a release and they just sell it direct and, and I don't have any involvement in it involved, but I still, I still get excited about it because I guess I came into it as a collector, not as I didn't come into it you know, purely as a businessman, although, you know, I bring, you know, nearly 25 years of experience in advertising to the table. That's awesome. I I imagine it would probably jade a lot of people, but it sounds like you're still very enthusiastic about what you're doing. That's awesome. Thanks. I hear, I hear a little bit of it in you though, from, from the last time you were on a year ago to now, I hear a little bit of the, like the, the normal guy in this scene tone in your voice <laughs> rather than the newbie that you used to be totally oh absolutely of course you know I, I you know when we had that that episode with uh Rutherford with ryan and i i said oh it's three and a half grumpy men i would say now if we did that if we redid that that episode it would be four grumpy men so definitely i mean you know i i think the things i said about you know the margins are so thin and it's like for instance, I buy you know this three hundred dollar toy, and I have to buy six of them, and I can only sell two of them. I'm not doing anyone a favor by buying those wholesale and trying to sell those. I'd be better off just to tell my regular customers, "Hey, just go and buy it directly from them." You know what right. I mean? You know, I don't see the logic in just like take, losing money for no reason. Like you know, and I don't think anybody would expect me or any of the companies just to like, oh well, if you really are passionate about this, you're going to just take a hit you're going to support so-and-so artist's new toy. You're going to take a hit by, by carrying this, you know, it's, I don't think anyone expects that. At least I hope they don't. No, I don't think they, I don't think they do expect it, but I know they complain about it. Like if, if a Dunny series has too many artists being used over the so much time, kid robot will take a lot of grief over that. You're, you're using the same artists or you're using the same uh, customizers and and stuff like that. Yeah. in the, in the regard to that, there's expectations, you know, wanting people wanting to introduce new blood. And I think that you are one of the few that are heavily working with new and upcoming artists that maybe the scene as a whole just aren't familiar with. And that's awesome. I commend you for that. Yeah, I think what ends up happening maybe, George, is like maybe eventually you get to a point where you just, you know, you start to lose the energy. You know, you're like, well, I think sometimes – you know, it's like, I don't think there's many people in the toy scene that are just driven by money, but at least if the money is coming in, that sort of fuels your energy. You can be like, all right, well, you know, I think that's what happened with Huck. I'm sure you guys have already talked about that on previous episodes is I think, you know, he lost, you know, he lost inertia, you know, he lost momentum because, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't paying his bills, you know? It wasn't a case of, oh, he's not being, he didn't become a millionaire, so he's giving up. Like, you know, if, if you're not paying your bills and you start to, to, you know, you start to lose momentum, you start to lose energy. So, like, there has to be some other reward besides just the satisfaction of helping a young artist or, or help some toy that wouldn't have, you know, that's somewhere in, say, Bangladesh get discovered. Like, 
that's cool to a certain extent, but if you're going to lose $1,000 importing that toy, then it's not as fun. True. I'll say that. I, I've done, you know, there's been a few things that I've brought over from certain countries and I got hit with a customs bill and still have those toys. They haven't sold. And yeah, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, no, that would suck. But I guess that's just the risk of being a, a producer or a store owner. Well, really just being in this, this toy scene in general. Um, but Aaron, we've been talking for quite a while from our questions. So we do have some questions from the listeners. We actually got them from the Stomping Ground. For anyone who's not familiar, the, uh, the Stomping Ground is the Marsham Toy Hour Facebook group. It's our own little community. We uh, do follow-up discussions from what's been uh, said or heard on the podcast. We do daily questions and polls and, and fun and stuff like that. We're just trying to start a, a nice little fun community. And so far, it's been really engaging and uh, new members joining every day. So if it sounds like something you're into, you can search Marsham Stomping Ground on Facebook and uh, give us a join. Anyone and everyone's welcome. Love to have you. And so, Aaron, you so you ready to field some uh, listener questions? I'll go for it. Sure. All right. First question is, what is your take on original versus parody, fair use, or reinterpretive toys? Would you prefer producing one over the other? I, I prefer original, but I think if, if, like, when they say parody, they mean, like, uh, like you know, Mickey Mouse, like, but he's obese or drunk or, yeah. you know, he's, like... Yeah, something like that. I, I don't completely rule that stuff out. I like some of it. You know, I think it's a little easier. I, you know, I think if you have, if you're using a, a licensed character, it's a, a little bit easier to sell than um, an original piece. But I, I, I like the original stuff. I, I mean, I would rather sell out an original character by an artist than, than do a parody. But I'm not going to say, oh, I'm above doing parodies. I, if, if it was a cool parody, I've, there's several toys that, I have in my own collection and there's stuff that I've seen and I think, wow, I'm jealous of that release. That would be a really cool release to do. Well, you did the, uh, the wet work scavengers and those were kind of fall yeah. into that category. It's, you look at it, it's very obviously star Wars. So yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good example. Okay. So another question is with the increased cost of toy production in China, do you see more production being done in Mexico? For example, the uh, recent wizard produced by sad salesman that was made in Mexico. Do you see more artists going that route and not having to pay that giant cargo freight shipping fee? I think there's several companies that are actively pursuing this right now, including Martian toys. Like I have a toy in production right now in Mexico. So yes, I think China, I, yeah, rising cost of shipping and, and rising cost of wages. Another thing that people maybe not don't realize is like, you know, there's been a little bit of a brain drain in the factories that make toys in China. Because if you're young and, and you want a factory job and you're going to the big city, you're leaving your, you know, your rural agricultural town and you're going to a big city for a factory job and your chance at a new life. Your first goal is to try to go work at one of the factories that makes smartphones. So all the best people, all the most eager, active, ambitious Chinese, are their, their goal is to go work and make iPhones or Samsungs. They're not going to, to make the next you know, Joe Ledbetter toy. Hopefully it'll be good, though, anyway. But you know, the, the best factory workers aren't working in the toy factories. That, that's another factor that people have to take into consideration. Hmm, okay. Do you think that rotocasted vinyl coming out of Chinese factories is 
kind of like an extinct thing within our toy scene at this point. I mean, I know companies like Kid Robot and... Um, 3D Retro. Yes, exactly. You know, companies like that are still producing there. But the small independent producer like myself, I think a lot of us are not, you know, using the Chinese factories anymore. I had a conversation with a very high-profile artist on Sunday, this just past Sunday. He kept me on the phone for over two hours, and he basically said, Rotovinyl is dead, Rotovinyl is dead, Rotovinyl is dead. Resin is... I mean, he's a smart guy, and he's right. I mean... It's getting squeezed out. I mean, there's so much resin now. There's so many people making resin, designing resin, producing resin, rotocasting resin, solid casting resin. You know, there's so many different versions of it. And uh, I guess even like traditional art galleries are more inclined to accept a resin toy than they are a, a rotovinyl toy. Like they see a rotovinyl toy as a toy, whereas they like you take, for instance, the stuff that Woes does with. Um, uh, what's I always forget the name of that gallery in California. It doesn't matter who they are, but like Woes makes those like those clear resin pandas, and I mean, he make whatever he'll make a purple one sold out, makes a clear clear sold out, makes a green one sells out, and you know they're short run and you know they have really good quality control and yeah I think Rotovine unless like there could be something else there could be a new technology that makes Rotovinyl come back, but Right now, it's how many new rotovinyl toys are you seeing? Not that many outside of Kid Robot. Yeah. Okay, so can I ask a quick question from a noob over here? What is the difference between rotovinyl and vinyl, or is there not a difference? George, take this one. I mean, you're, it depends on what you're talking about. Mostly, they're probably the same thing. Rotocasting is just a process using vinyl. PVC is is also technically vinyl. It's the same material. It's just when someone says something like PVC, they generally mean injection molded. And when they say vinyl, they generally mean rotocast vinyl. Um, Basically the same material, just two different processes of making the toy. Uh, PVC injection molded has seam lines because the mold making process is like a a two or more part mold that is uh, generally a metal mold put together where it's under, it's like a steel mold where it's put together under high pressure and the, the, the PVC is injected into it. Um, and a rotocast vinyl is an open mold uh, where one end is open and you're pouring the vinyl into it. And it's generally either a rotocast spinning process or a uh, vacuum process to get the air out. The outer edge is baked in the mold and then the inner liquid is poured out. It's rebaked to cure the inside. And then you pull your you pull your toy out of the mold through that opening that you have, um, and it kind of squeezes it squeezes out the one little hole, collapses in on itself, and then pops back into shape because the vinyl keeps its shape. So it's a uh, it's two different processes for basically the same material. Okay, so it's like a hollow toy versus a non like a non hollow. Yeah, most of your cute little toys, your little your rement type food things, and all those little cutesy toys that that come out that you collect are probably pvc they're they're generally injection molded there's usually a seam line and and we're talking higher quantities too right for injection right versus uh, it's you don't have to but it's generally better to because the molds cost a lot more um so generally if you want to if you're going to be making a pvc thing with injection molded you're going to want to do you're going to want to use it more um just to pay off that mold cost so most 
so the toys I have where they've got like a little hole on the bottom and I can squish them, those are most likely rotovinyl. So are you talking small, down. like squinky size, or are you talking small, like a like a finger puppet type thing? Oh, like like Elfies, for example, made by Unbox. Like they are hollow, but maybe they're soft vinyl. Maybe they aren't even. Maybe they're something different entirely. So even even soft vinyl. So soft vinyl is rotocast vinyl. That's the same process. Okay. Anything like those, any of those Japanese toys, like anything like from Japan, that's rotocast vinyl. Not anything, but. For the most part, all the Japanese vinyl toys that you're seeing are rotocast vinyl. Okay, it's just some are soft, meaning they stay squishy-ish, and some are harder vinyl that aren't. And all that is is the durometer of the vinyl. That's the uh, the the hardness of the vinyl. So there's a there's a, a polymer that you put into vinyl that you add to it, a chemical that you add to vinyl that dictates the the hardness or softness. The more of that you add, the softer it gets. The less of that you have, the harder it is. Teresa, do you like your toys hard or soft? I actually think I like them soft. That's why I'm kind of sad if you all are saying roto vinyl is going away. I think I have a yeah, lot of that. Injected, like, you know, a good example of the injection molded stuff is the, is the Funko Mystery Minis. Those, I think, are all injected molded, I think. You know, most of your mass-produced toys are injected molded. Isn't that correct, George? Yeah, I mean, when you go to, when you go to Target and you look through the toy aisle like action figures, you know, all that stuff, dolls for the most part, like monster high, things like that will probably be injection molded bodies with a rotocast mold head. Like that soft Barbie squishy head. That's a rotocast part on an injection molded body. Oh mm-hmm. man. I feel so you were talking about toy IQ. I feel like I'm jumping up there. <laughs> IQ boost. No, I'm actually, like, I'm literally looking out in the room, analyzing my toys, and I keep flipping them upside down to look at their bottoms and squish them, because I obviously have, I like hard and soft toys, clearly. I have a million. Well, a, a lot of the times, the the more Chinese-produced vinyl toys, they tend to be a little on the harder side, versus the Sofubi, that's why they call it softer vinyl, it tends to be a little more squishy, maybe a little lighter. And then when something goes a little smaller, like even the Dunny, the, the head and bodies are rotocasted, but the little arms, injection molded. Those have a slight seam on there, and those, are, you know, those aren't hollow. And, and that'll be sometimes why you'll see two different colors. Like when a, if, it's yeah. a, if the body is slightly different color than the arms, even though they're supposed to be the same, sometimes if it's unpainted, they just, it doesn't match exactly. Um, and sometimes even if it is painted... Sometimes the paint doesn't lay the same on injection molded as it does. They could be using the same paint, but between the injection molded part and the rotocast part, it just doesn't lay the same. It just doesn't cover the same. So a lot of times you'll see that difference in, uh, in paint. Or if you look at an old Star Wars figure, if you look at old uh, Stormtroopers, a good one, you'll see them a lot where the body is yellow when it used to be a white figure. The body is completely yellow and the arms and legs are white still. And it's because yeah. the body was ABS and the arms and legs were PVC and the ABS yellowed over time and the, and the arms and legs didn't. So it, there's a lot of different materials and toys like that. Yeah. So my brother, Greg, he, he's a designer for Funko. And he was telling me that because of that reason that you, you specified that when they're selecting the Pantones for the toys, they have to select a, a different color depending on whether it's rotocasted or injection molded. So you know, if you pick a, a yellow for the roto and you pick another yellow for the injection mold, they have to match. To match. Yeah, exactly. So so that's like a science in and of itself, you know. That, that's not easy to do. 
But that's awesome that they pay attention to that. That's something that a lot of companies wouldn't even care about. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Why uh, didn't you derail from uh, stomping ground questions? I just, <laughs> I had to know, like you're sitting talking no, about it. No, it's good. I don't know what That's good. Is. So. Well, if, if you're going to ask, someone out there else was thinking it too, so it's fine. Exactly. Exactly. That's why we keep you around, Teresa. See, I, I ask all the good stuff. Well, now I'm literally going to go around and like touch and look and inspect my toys. And you're I'm going to try to group you're gonna them. Re, I'm you're going to research your toys by whether they're injected or rotocast. Right. I'm going to try to pile them, and then I'm going to take pictures, and you tell me how good I did. You can grade me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, that's what we're, we're here to increase toy IQs. That's what we're here for. I know since we started this show, my IQ has gone up at least one category. I would say I was definitely on the dull to average side. I feel like now I might be in the uh, the above average toy IQ side. I don't know. He'll say I top you, Gary. That was... <laughs> hmm. You keep thinking that, <laughs> Teresa. Um, but that, that was actually a question that we posed to the stomping ground last week. And it was, uh, it was fun. It was done in a poll style. And basically, like, the bottom tier of the, the toy IQ scale would be, like, you know, basically someone who just knows how to spell toy. Or I kind of thought of it as what the average, like, maybe coworker or significant other knows about designer toys. Like, they're aware of a, of a company like Kid Robot, but they don't care to know much more than that. And so, and then from that tier, you just kept on going up to, like, professor genius level. And it was fun. And we got, to, got some fun responses. It was a good engagement question on that one. So, yeah. All right. So let's get back to some listener questions. And our next one is... Actually, you actually sort of touched on this when we were talking about Eastern producers and how you import toys. So they were talking about MOQs and shipping rates and all that sort of stuff and how the, the, the difficulty of that. So I guess I'll rephrase the question to, do you think that some producers are trying to push out retailers by going direct to market so much? Um, I, for the most part, I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't think it's malicious. I, I don't think anyone is like, I, I think people just don't want to lose money. I think people are just scared to lose money. I, uh, there could be a few kind of Mr. Greedy guts out there, but I would say no. I think it's just business. I think it's just they're just trying to figure out how to sell the most amount of toys so that they can make enough money to make the next toy. I agree. I can't think of any one person that I would think is doing this for any other reason besides they really like toys. Like, the, the, like we said, the margins in so many other industries are so much better than toys. So like, I feel like anyone who's doing this in toys, they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they really, probably most of the toy owners are collectors to some extent themselves. And they make toys because they love toys. George makes toys because he loves toys. And, you know, I, I don't know anyone that would be doing this for the money. I, I really don't. I don't think there's anyone that's purposely trying to screw anyone over right uh, now, i mean the ones that generally get into it for the money they're the ones that leave pretty quickly yeah it's yeah it's like there's it's the margins are so razor thin now and they they they've gotten thinner I mean, are there people that have been screwed over by people yeah but i don't think they're i don't think anyone is purposely setting out to screw anyone over they're just thinking hey how do i make enough money selling this toy so that i can make enough money to make the next toy and and exactly. they've determined the best way they can do that is sell direct to the customer and not try to go through a distribution center in the United States or or just try to contact all the retailers one at a time and 
sort out that. Like it's just easier just to sell directly to the customer. Right. I mean, I think it only makes sense. And it's unfortunate, I, but I do understand why, you know, producers and companies and artists are wanting to sell directly. They're not, they don't have to share their profits. They, If they can sell to the fan base and things sell out, then why would you want to share that? So I get it. But it's unfortunate in the sense that somehow I would like to see Western toys be able to get it over to the East and the Eastern toys be able to get to the Western collectors and just things go vice versa and everyone's happy on both sides of the world. And unfortunately this sort of stuff only seems to, to happen when artists or companies can travel to conventions and then feed that collector base. Otherwise it's very hard to you know, get things into the hands of each other. Let's run this out a little bit and see, see where, like what, what is the purpose of the U S based online retailers and brick and mortar retailers? I mean, Obviously, you know, each of us is in, in business to be successful and so, so that we can sell more toys or make more toys or make and sell more toys. But, I mean, one of, the, one of the benefits for 12 to 15 stores in the United States is it provides a podium to show these toys to different people. So if we all go away, it might be short-sighted of somebody like Unbox if, if they just say, okay, we're building a vertical market, we're going to have a factory and we're going to we're going to make all these toys and we're going to sell them directly right now. That's probably working out really well for them. But if you fast forward five or six years, if, if enough of the U S retailers go away online and brick and mortar, then there's less presence at things like five points festival or designer con San Diego comic con. The guys that have been doing this the longest, they'll tell you that what ends up happening with collectors is collectors run out of room. So collectors stop collecting it at some point. And so you have to get new collectors. And how do you get new collectors through cons and how do you and cons only work if there's stores to go to cons for the most part. I mean, you have some big time artists that self-produce of course, but even they are getting squeezed a little bit. So then I don't know, it, at some point it might be harder to sell direct. You you can sell direct if people know you exist, but you know, Teresa, you might have a great idea for jewelry design and you could set up a website tomorrow. But if you don't have a way to ex- get yourself exposed to as many people as possible, no one's going to know you're there. So yep. I don't know. I feel like those companies, they're reaping the rewards of not necessarily anything that I've done or any of the online retailers, but maybe like Kid Robot. Like Kid Robot invested millions of dollars over a decade. And that had, a, that had a, you know, they pumped money into this, into the whole system and if all that goes away, then I don't know. Do you feel like there's more excitement for what's going on in the East versus the West right now? I think... Um, what are you seeing from your collectors and retails? Yeah, I think, you know, Kid Robot has found, a, I think, you know, Kosick's found a workable formula with with all the licensed stuff. I mean, all the Bob's Burger stuff and the Rick and Morty. I mean, that stuff does really well for them. And I think Kid Robot's probably healthier today than they were five years ago. Yeah. Um, it's not the same thing as what you're talking about. The, you know, the, the really edgy designer toys are, you know, thousand toys and instinct toys and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, Kid Robot is kind of halfway in between Funko and instinct toy, for instance. Right. So like instinct toy is the one making all the real cutting edge stuff. Yeah, very much so. No, I just saw that Kid Robot's doing an Elvis toy for Graceland. I saw it over on um, Vinyl Pulse. Oh, Kid Robot! Somebody sent that. Yeah. Is that a, is that an old toy or is that something? No. Is that like a sneak peek? 
No, it's a new toy. I think it just came out. I think it's on graystand.com, or you can go to graystand and buy it. I think there was like three or maybe four different colorways or versions. And um, and this is what Kid Robot has to do. They're, they're a collectible company. I know most people think that they're an art toy company, and maybe that's how they started out, but now they're more of a collectible company, and nothing sells better than pop culture. So, of course, they're going to do that. And then any profits made from that stuff, then they can roll it in and do the occasional art toy. If you do license stuff, you know, if it's done well, like I think the Rick and Morty and the and the Bob's Burger stuff, those are licenses, but those are kind of new licenses. It's kind of like somewhat counterculture, sort of edgy stuff. You know, it's not, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not old, old stuff. Like the DC to me, I don't know if you guys talked about the DC Denny's, but we have. I mean, I don't think we've sold one of those. Like those have been you know, not very successful. People aren't interested in the DC Dunnies. But, so, but the, you know, those weren't directed for us, our market. So maybe they're doing well in the Barnes and Noble and comic shops. Yeah. Uh, so we're getting kind of long here. So George or Teresa, do you have any questions or follow up for Aaron before we do more stomping ground? No, I think we're, I think I'm good. Yeah. Stomp away with stomping ground. Okay. Well, here's one of the harder hitting questions, Aaron. If you could fight any member of the designer toy community in a charity boxing match, who would it be and why? Wow. Who asked that question? <laughs> who do you think asked? Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, I um I don't know how to, I don't know how, there's several ways I could answer that. Um <laughs> I don't, I, okay. I, okay, you're off the hook. I, well, not off the hook, but I'll give you a few minutes to think about, about that because I know we put you on the spot. Okay. Uh, and we'll come back to you then. So when this question was posed on the stomping ground, it got me thinking, like, I think it would be pretty cool to have something like this going on in the back of a, a convention like a Five Points or a Decon, like an annual, a fun annual, like fun competitive event that you can look forward to every year. Like, I love Battle of the Network Stars. I don't know if that's just something that I grew up with, but I like games, so I, that's a show I enjoy watching. And there's things like Tug of War. And uh, What if you went to the back and there was an artist versus a blogger doing a sumo wrestling thing? Or Tug of War between bloggers and podcasters, or artists and sculptors, or, or online stores versus retail store or brick-and-mortar stores, or something like that. Like, I think that'd be fun. Uh... Or what about something to help generate money? Like maybe a dunk tank. You can just help generate money for a charity for Toys for Tots or maybe a billboard to put up in the greater Los Angeles or New York area promoting designer toys. And it could be something like $5 for three balls and you get a chance to dunk a bunch of people on the scene like Rosansky or something. Like I think it would be fun, but I don't know. Gary, when when you start showing up at conventions, you can tell us what's fun at conventions. <laughs> oh, come on! <laughs> How, how how fun would that be? Sign me up. I'll be there. So if I get a if I make a dunk tank, are you gonna sit in it? Sure. <laughs> Sounds are like fun. Serious? Yeah. I, know, I let me like, know so I, I can like, start working out though. I like the idea of pitting people against it, but I also how fun would it be? Like Gary, I would totally put on those inflatable sumo suits and wrestle you, and I would totally win. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Is that a challenge? I, uh, it's totally I, a challenge. But I, need to... I, I just think this, this this toy scene could use a little like company picnic atmosphere. Like, uh, I don't know. I think it'd be fun. I, I love this sort of stuff. I mean, talking about like group bonding, I think that's 
kind of what we need a little bit. There's so much individuality, so much direct to market. If there's more like bonding events like this, I think it would help. But I, I don't know. How cool would it be to see something like George up against Huck in a football throwing, like a throwing a football through a hole contest or something like that? I've met Huck. He's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the battle is, he's going to win. <laughs> so bring on the dunk tank. I'm ready. Bring it on. I'll, I'll be there. I'll talk to Ben. <laughs> can you can you repeat the original question? Because I was looking at Elvis yeah. figures. I forgot. I didn't hear it. The question is, if you could fight any member of the designer toy community in a charity boxing match, who would it be and why? Oh, okay. Who's small and frail? Yeah, I think that's the first way you got to go, right? I mean, you're not going to challenge Huck or, or, no. Spanky to, or Spanky to a boxing match. <laughs> you want to take me on? I'm I'm pretty scrawny. I probably couldn't knock you out. I I'll, I'll say Suck Lord. I think that would be it. Would be entertaining if nothing. Else. <laughs> yeah, that would be funny. Yeah, he he would probably throw more punches verbally than with his actual fists. All right, next that? question. That's it. That's all we got. Okay. <laughs> a lot of the other questions were kind of bouncing off what we've already it's talked funny. about. You, you like this idea because, like, when I suggested the the Marshami Awards, you didn't want anything to do with that. No, I was totally on board with that. It was just that hard would have been to funny though. That I, I really... no, it is, but it's 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 a great idea, uh-huh. but uh, a huge time investment. What was this, Marshami? The Marshami Awards. You, you ever watch The Office, Teresa? You ever watch uh, the, no. the TV that, show? No, but I know what The Office is. <laughs> Teresa's yeah. terrible pop culture. They, they, they had the Dundee Awards, and it was basically... It's like the MTV Awards against the Oscars. So let's say the Desire Toy Awards is the Oscars of the toy scene. Well, we're, now we'll go MTV Awards with the Marshami Awards. Well, we'll be like best... I don't yeah, know, best I, we, beard. I had best beard, best tattoo, cutest couple... Uh, you know, there were there was like the three obvious ones. I, I thought there would be kind of fun because you know, there's so many guys with beards. There's so many tat. There's so many interesting tattoos in the in the designer toy world. And then like, uh, yeah, like there's also we did an episode once. Remember, Gary, where we talked about all the artists that are like husband wife teams or boyfriend yep. girlfriend teams. There's so yep. many. We there's well over twenty like that we know of. Like it's yeah. crazy. So, and we had some fun categories. There's a lot more that we haven't mentioned, but I think the difficulty is is a lot of that's insider stuff. Like you really, it's insider until you do the episode, and then people go and research it, and then the next year check it out. You know, just be. I don't know. I just thought it'd be funny. I love the idea. Trust me, I am all on board for the Dundee Awards version of you know the Marshamis. I I love it. But one, it's a huge time investment, and two, I don't want to fall into what the Designer Toy Awards has to deal with every year with. Backseat drivers talking about why was this person not nominated or you missed this you didn't do that I don't want to deal with all that crap either so but if it's a funny thing who's gonna say well gee I should have won best tattoo how did you you know how oh, did you God. get that award I mean would anyone really get that offended the whole idea was that it's uh, supposed to be light it's supposed to be light and funny you know yeah and it would be I'm sure there's some people that would find it hilarious there's other people that want no part of it yeah. it's, it's a toy scene they're artists they're sensitive it's well. Like- but if you think back to, like, when we were, like, I don't know if you all did this, but, like, when we were in grade school, they did, like, I don't know, most likely to become a doctor and most likely to blah and most likely yeah. to do this. And some of yeah. them were, like, extremely goofy. I think if you 
purposefully made it absurd maybe people will realize that it's not like a serious thing. It's just for fun. Yeah. So we could do, you know, best dressed, most congenial, all that stupid stuff. Yeah. Best beard. Um, yeah. You don't do like, you know, most argumentative or, you know, most irritable <laughs> person. Or But that's what, that's what people would want. I us better to win do. that one. <laughs> <laughs> You'll definitely be a nominee. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it's enough to Although be nominated. I, thank you. I love the new George though. George, I like this new you. <laughs> What's new you George? St- well, you still got that, that edge to you, but I, it felt like back in like the, I don't know, your toy break days, I, I didn't see you like laughing as much and smiling as much. And now you're just like, uh, I don't know, you just kind of like let things roll off. Yeah, you still give your honest feedback, but you're more uh, playful and fun about it, I think. Look at me. I grew up a little. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> Maybe I'm rubbing off on you. There you go. <laughs> oh, Teresa, you're definitely growing. Someone let me know that you said like two cuss words on the last episode. I know. Go wash my mouth out with soap. What was I thinking? I- I'm pretty sure those cuss words were like dang or <laughs> something like that. But, you know, it was you're, a you're very stern out. darn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You all are corrupting me. <laughs> it's been fun, too. Um, so I, let's just go ahead and wrap this up. It's been fun reuniting with you, Aaron. Yeah, I had a good time tonight. It's a, it was a good episode. I hope hope I didn't talk too much. Yeah. I hope you talked yeah. a lot. That's the point of this thing. Yeah, you are <laughs> Yeah, I mean, actually, Aaron, that's one thing that I've always appreciated about you is you're so open and willing to talk. And I know a lot of people, they hold things close to chest and they want to be very PR with their answers. They don't want to you know, rub anyone the wrong way, but you've always kind of been like, I don't know if that happens, it happens. And you've always been very open and honest with your answers. So I, I do appreciate you coming on and be so forthright and honest with, you know, what's going on on the retail side of the scene. I appreciate that. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. I, you know, I try, you know, I, I, I try to, you know, be fair with everyone and, and try to be diplomatic a little bit, but yeah, I try to be open as well. And, uh, you know, you, you can't please everyone, you know, you, sometimes people do, you know, so well, well, why did you, you know, there might be someone who said, well, why did you call out X, Y, and Z, but you didn't mention me? I, I've had artists who've, who said, well, why didn't you invite me to the show? You know, my stuff always sells. And I, and I said, well, I'm just trying to invite new people. And, and like, well, why did you reinvite this person? And then I, 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 my comeback to that would be, well, okay, I want you to think about it tonight and give me your list of 25 artists you'd invite to a show tomorrow. And then they would send me the list and I say, okay, well, what about so-and-so? What about so-and-so? What about, yeah. and they'll say, oh, I get your point. So yeah, you know, you can't please everyone. And, but at the same time, I, yeah, try to just be open, like you said, and, and, you know, hopefully I didn't say anything like offensive to anyone. And if I did, I'm sorry. So no, uh, we appreciate you for doing what you do. Why don't you take a brief moment and let everyone know where they can find you, Aaron? Uh, yeah, go to martiantoys.com. Uh, you can, if you want to reach me directly, you can either write info at Martian Toys or you can find me Instagram direct message. I'm really good about responding there. I'm not so good on Facebook. And uh, if you have like a, you know, a serious question, you feel free to use the toll free number 866-867-5329. And uh, I'm usually available like, you know, 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day. Did you say eight six seven five three two nine? 
<laughs> yeah, it's one digit. Damn off. it, that's so close. Yeah, five three oh nine. We tried to get five three oh nine. It was already taken, but we're one digit off of the the eighty song. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah. I almost <laughs> sang it out loud just now. <laughs> sing it for us, Teresa. <laughs> no. You could no. sing it at the end of the show. <laughs> there you go. I'm gonna make you sing it. Damn it. You can sing it with me. I'll sing it with you. I love singing. All right, stay tuned after the music. All right, so uh, George, <laughs> how can people find you? Uh, at Double G Toys on Instagram, at George Gaspar on Twitter. That's enough. <laughs> Teresa. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at tmhawk24. And I'm Gary Ham. You can find me at Gary Ham on Instagram or superham.com. This has been the Marsham Toy Hour. We do this every week, not because we have to, but because we want to. So until our next transmission, we're signing off. Bye. Bye. But you make me so